0: About midway through C.S. Lewis's classic children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about halfway through, a remarkable change begins to take place in the land of Narnia. Capturing the first signs of this remarkable change, not to mention the great joy with which these signs were received and interpreted, Capturing this, Lewis writes, and I quote Unless you have looked at a world of snow as Edmund had been looking at it, you will hardly be able to imagine what a relief those green patches were after the endless white. What a relief those green patches were after the endless white. You see, for as long as anyone could remember, the land of Narnia had been under the spell of the White Witch. For as long as anyone could remember, Narnia had been cloaked in snow and darkness. For as long as anyone could remember, color had been absent and life had been suppressed. But now suddenly with the emergence of these green patches amid the snow now signs of color and signs of life were popping up here and there suggesting that something new was happening, that something radical was breaking through, that the hoped for change, that the hoped for transformation was finally beginning. And this, Lewis writes, came to those in Narnia as a profound relief, a relief. And so listen now to more of Lewis's narration. As Edmund looked at a tree beside him, he saw a green load of snow slide off of it. And for the first time since he had entered Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. Then, only five minutes later, he noticed a dozen crocuses growing around the foot of an old tree. And on and on, Lewis writes, describing for us as readers how signs of life, how signs of the longed-for, hoped-for restoration of Narnia, how these were now, in this moment, popping up here and there, pointing the way. Now, I could talk for hours about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You see, it's the book that as a child made me fall in love with reading. Not to mention the book that I've been waiting oh so impatiently to read to my children since the very morning Ada was born. That's a whole other question, though. No, the reason I bring up The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this morning is because it, perhaps better than any other illustration I know of, helps us better understand what is happening in our gospel lesson today, and with it, helps us better understand the direct connection between what Jesus was doing in his first coming with what that means for his coming again in glory. So having said that, let's turn together now to our text from Luke chapter 7, where John the Baptist, he who first proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, he who baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Let us turn now to this chapter where here, by this point of the gospel, this same John is in prison. And as today's passage picks up with John in prison, we see John dispatch a few of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask Jesus whether he really is the one to come. That is, whether Jesus really is the one for whom Israel has all this time been waiting. John summoned two of his disciples, verse 18 says, and he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Now this is a fascinating verse. It's a fascinating question. And had we not read the first part of Luke's gospel, that is, had we not read about how certain John was of Jesus' identity when first he baptized him, Had we not already read that, then there would be nothing fascinating about this verse at all. However, seeing as we have read the story of Jesus' baptism, and therefore have known about John's earlier certainty, this verse therefore becomes quite remarkable indeed. For why, we must ask, would John have been so convinced of Jesus' identity as the Messiah in chapter three, but now in chapter seven, a few years later, chronologically speaking, why now would he suddenly be inquiring about whether Jesus really is the Messiah after all? Do you follow that question? In other words, what has Jesus done that has caused John the Baptist to begin second-guessing him. What has he done? The answer is, it's what Jesus hasn't done. It has caused John the Baptist to begin second-guessing him. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day had a very particular expectation for what their coming Messiah would be like. And the expectation was that the Messiah, whenever he finally came along, would be a charismatic figure, a figure skilled in public leadership, someone capable of leading the revolt to free Israel from its subjectivity to Rome. And this, it ought to be noted, by the way, is what the majority of those following Jesus were also expecting from him, including even his disciples. But that's a different sermon. So now, though, two years after he's baptized him, himself now in prison, now, two years later, John the Baptist, seeing no evidence of a revolution soon to take place, seeing no indication of Israel slipping out from under Rome's thumb, seeing no signs of the kingdom the Messiah was expected to bring about, and seeing himself about to be executed... Now, in light of all of this, John the Baptist quite reasonably begins to question Was this really the guy after all? Was this really the Messiah after all? Have I been wrong about all of this after all? So off go John's disciples. And presently, they deliver John's message to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, they ask? Or are we to wait for another? To which Jesus responds, Go and tell John what you see and hear. Go and tell John what you see and hear. And then, because Jesus knows what John is really asking, and because he further knows that John's disciples don't understand the meaning of his reply, Jesus then spells it out for them. Go and tell John what you see and hear, he says. Tell John how the blind receive their sight, and how the lame walk. And how the lepers are cleansed. And how the deaf hear. Go and tell John how the dead are raised and how the poor receive good news. Go, Jesus says, and tell John that. Okay, let me ask you now a very important question. In fact, the question this whole sermon hinges upon why that? Why those things? That's not what John or his disciples or anyone else for that matter is looking for. They're looking for signs of power and leadership and freedom from Roman authority and oppression. So why does Jesus tell John's disciples to go and tell him about this stuff instead? Well, to help answer that question, let me read to you now some words from Isaiah chapter 35, words regarding the state of affairs that Jews of Jesus' day believed would reign come the future age, come the age when God had redeemed and restored creation, restored it to its original goodness and wholeness. Come the age when God's kingdom had come on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, hear now these words about the Jewish hope for the coming restoration of God's good creation and about the coming restoration of the human beings whom God originally tasked to be loving caretakers of it. Do not fear. Isaiah chapter 35 says, For here is your God, meaning here God once more dwells among you, just as in the beginning in Genesis 1. Quote, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer, and then the tongues of the speechless shall sing for joy. Do you hear that? Do you follow that? When asked by John's disciples whether he really is the Messiah, whether he really is the one on whom they've been waiting, Jesus responds by saying, Hey, look at what I'm doing. Look at what's happening around me. And think about Isaiah chapter 35 as you do. Look, weak hands are being strengthened and feeble knees made firm. Look, the eyes of the blind are being opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Look, the lame are leaping like deer, and the tongues of the speechless are singing for joy. In other words, look all around you. That which the prophets have said about the coming kingdom, about the state of affairs, and the coming restoration of all things, look. Through me, signs of this are beginning to take place. Don't you see, he is saying, here and there, in certain places, the deaf are hearing and the lame are talking. Here and there, in certain places, the blind are seeing and the lepers are being raised. Here and there, in certain places, demonstrations of the coming kingdom of God are happening. Do you follow? Jesus is effectively saying, go and tell John that signs of God's coming kingdom, that signs of the restoration of all things, go and tell John that these long-waited-for things are taking place around you. Only you're all so busy looking for what you expect to see from the Messiah that you're failing to see what is happening right in front of you. Which leads me back now to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. In that beautiful passage I quoted earlier what the young boy Edmund was seeing was not the full-on restoration of the land of Narnia but were instead small signs pointing to the full-on restoration to come. Do you follow that? He didn't see a forest filled with evergreen trees now he saw a forest filled with snow-covered trees, only one of which had green fur beginning to poke through. And he didn't see a field full of crocuses, no, he saw a small patch of crocuses popping up out of the frozen tundra all around him. In other words, what Lewis is depicting here in this scene is not the culmination of the longed for restoration of Narnia, but is its beginning. What Lewis is depicting here is not the final state of things for Narnia, but is the first sign that a new state of things is one day coming. And follow me here now because here is the entire sermon. So too is what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Not the culmination of the longed for restoration of God's good creation, but is instead its beginning so too is what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Not the final state of things for God's good creation, but is the first sign that a new state of things is one day coming. The things Jesus tells John's disciples to report back to him on, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the lepers cleansed, the poor comforted. These are but sprouts of green fir amid a forest of still frozen trees. These are but a small patch of crocuses springing forth from an as yet snow-covered field. You follow. These acts. Of Jesus, these signs, these miracles, these point to the restoration of creation that is one day to come. But they are not the full on restoration that is one day to come. Because for that, John the Baptist and all the world along with him will have to wait. Which leads us back now to our ongoing reflection in this sermon series surrounding what the season of Advent is really about. Just as those of Jesus' day were left to wait for the return of Christ and with his return for the promised and longed for restoration of all things so too are we ourselves 2,000 years later waiting for the same. So too are we, like them, waiting. Like them, we too are trusting in and are hoping for and are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ and with his return, the final consummation of God's promised kingdom the restoration of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, where death and crying and suffering will be no more, as we read last week. The new heaven and the new earth, where the blind will see and where the deaf will hear, where the lame will leap like deer and where the mute will sing for joy, as we read this week. Yes, so too are we, like those who first beheld Jesus' acts of healing and restoration and felt such profound relief upon seeing them. So too are we, like them, waiting for the full-on healing and restoration that Jesus promises us will one day come. So that, then, is what Advent is all about. It is about reminding us what it is that we as Christians believe is one day coming. For again, Advent literally means coming. But to tie this whole sermon together now, here is why it is so important that we be reminded of this at Advent. Advent. It is so important, not only for the sake of being reminded of what our future hope is, though of course that's important, but also so that in being reminded, we remember the connection between what our future hope is and that which has already begun. Do you follow that? Advent immediately precedes Christmas on the Christian calendar for a very specific purpose. It is to remind us that the particulars of the first coming point always to the general promises of the second. That they can never be disconnected. It is to remind us that in the incarnation of God in Christ that all that Jesus said and did, and most demonstrably in his bodily resurrection from the dead, it is to remind us that all of this provides us anticipatory signs of how things one day will be. In other words, in the person of Jesus, we have seen a few green firs pop out of the frozen forest. And because we've seen these green firs pop out here and there, we therefore have an idea of what a forest full of pines will one day look like. And follow me here now because this is everything. Because we've seen lepers cleansed and the poor comforted, We therefore have an idea what a coming kingdom wherein all are loved and whole and comforted and embraced looks like. Because we have seen the mute given voice and the lame legs to walk, we therefore have an idea of what a coming kingdom wherein ailment and disability have no power looks like. And because we have seen a man from Nazareth bodily raised from the dead, we therefore have an idea what a coming kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, where death is no more, looks like. And so, then, to underscore the point of this sermon. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, this is what he means. He means that through the demonstrations of his own life, the green furs of divine healing are now beginning to push through this frozen fallen world. He means that through the demonstrations of his own life, that crocuses of divine restoration are beginning to spring forth in this callous, corrupted world. That is what he means when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And having said that, I cannot now overstress the importance of what I'm about to say. And in saying what I'm about to say, by the way, I will be pointing us forward to the next sermon in this series. What follows from this, what follows from this renewed awareness That through the demonstration of Jesus we have seen anticipatory signs of the coming kingdom. That we have seen through his particular acts the kingdom of God at hand. What follows from this is that as his disciples we then recognize that we too have been called by him and empowered by him through his spirit to make manifest signs of this coming kingdom ourselves. That is, we recognize that we too have been called and have been empowered by Christ to, like him, clear a few trees and plant a few crocuses in our own backyards. That we have been called to do everything we can to demonstrate that through the finished work of the incarnate Christ that the kingdom of God really is at hand. It means that we too are called to do everything we can in anticipation of that coming day to make it ever more on earth as it is in heaven. Which is to say in closing that we as Christians are to remember during Advent that in anticipation of the restoration that we believe is one day to come, that we have been empowered by Christ to help prepare the way for it. To help cleanse the leper. Help steady the feeble. To help feed the hungry and help comfort the poor. That we have been empowered by Christ to give voice to the voiceless and to bring good news to all those who've yet to hear about it. That is what this means. And so this Advent season, as we wait on the coming of the Lord, and with him on the promised restoration of all things, as we wait, let us fully understand what Jesus meant when he said that the kingdom of God is at hand. Let us understand that he meant that through what he was doing, crocuses were now appearing And that they were pointing the way forward to a full field of flowers to come. And likewise, let us understand that in showing us what a field full of flowers looks like, he was then calling us to begin planting a few crocuses of our own in our backyards today. Today. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.